to the Michael Rothstein Show. I am your host, Michael Rothstein. This podcast is being brought to you by Untuck It, the button-down shirt meant to be worn untucked, and Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Before we get into questions for this week's pod bag portion of the podcast, just a couple of quick thoughts and a mention of something new we're trying. If you're on Facebook, we now have a group for the show. It's called The Michael Rothstein Show. I know, creative name. We'll be posting every episode on there as well as on Twitter and on Instagram at Mike Rothstein and also be taking your thoughts and engaging on there as much as possible. So if you're on Facebook, come on by and also feel free to follow me as well at Michael Rothstein Journalist where I post a lot of my stories. So it was a fairly quiet week in the world of the Lions. Not too surprising considering it's the first real week of the offseason and everybody from coaches to front office to, yes, even media, needs some downtime before the combine ramps up here at the end of the month. Detroit still has some assistant coach moves to make, a defensive backs coach and tight ends coach notably, and don't be surprised if you start to hear some movement on cap cuts, if there are any, sometime soon. Mid-February, once all of player evaluations are done, are usually when that starts to take place all the way up until the beginning of the new league year. So with that in mind, it's time for our betonline.ag take of the week. Betonline.ag, your online sportsbook expert. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for a 50% welcome bonus. The Lions have some interesting roster decisions to make. Complicated more so by the win-now edict thrown down by the Ford family in December. Yes, the meaningful games in December mantra is a bit murky, as is the expectation of playoff contention, because honestly, Washington and the Giants were technically in playoff contention later than the Lions last year, and both those teams at that point looked well worse than Detroit. But general manager Bob Quinn still has some decisions to make with the dual thoughts of the present and the future in focus. And that's potentially where saying goodbye or not saying goodbye to some players comes into play. The biggest name to look at would be right tackle Rick Wagner. Wagner has been fine since signing with the Lions in 2017. But does fine equate to an $11.9 million cap hit and $9 million in cash for 2020? That's a tough sell for me at this point. If the Lions were to move on from Wagner, they would save $6.1 million, which could be a benefit over the long haul of an offseason where you could use some more cap space. Of course, letting go of Wagner, who again has been fine but not elite, does create another hole as Detroit looks for ways to plug holes they currently have. And that's the problem. The question would be, does Detroit believe it has an in-house replacement ready in Tyrell Crosby? Or would they want to go and spend on the market? Or would they consider moving Taylor Decker to right tackle, kind of similar to what the team did with Riley Reef when they drafted Decker in 2016, and then bring in or draft a new left tackle? All of those things are possible. It's an interesting question and one that doesn't have an obvious right answer to me. But Wagner's name, whether he 
ends up with the Lions in 2020 or not would be one to watch. While you might think Jesse James would fall into this category as well, the tight end won't. He has $2.25 million guaranteed this, se- this season, and getting rid of him would actually cost the Lions over $4 million more than keeping him. So it's just not going to happen. Snacks Harrison, whose will he or won't he on retirement is still out there as of Sunday afternoon when I'm recording this, has no guaranteed money, but has $3.5 million guaranteed for injury only. And remember, he was beat up all of last year, so that physical would be interesting potentially. He's at $11.75 million against the cap in 2020, which sounds really large. And the Lions would save $6.75 million by moving on. But if you're Detroit, like with Rick Wagner, this would create another hole. Unlike Wagner, Harrison's play issues might have stemmed from injury. So if he can get healthy, he could return to his prior form when he was one of the best run stuffers in the NFL. So there you have it. Those are the main guys to look at and focus on the next few weeks as things rumble on to the new year as the betonline.ag take of the week. Remember to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for your 50% welcome bonus at betonline.ag. We'll be right back after this with your questions for this week's podback. Ever see an untucked button-down? They look bad. Why? Because they weren't meant to be worn that way. Thankfully, there's Untuck It, the original button-down shirt actually designed to be worn untucked. No matter your size or shape, Untuck It shirts always fall at the perfect untucked length. With more than 50 fit combinations, Untuck It shirts look great on tall, short, slim, and athletic guys of all ages, including creeping toward middle-aged people like me. You can choose from styles like wrinkle-free button-downs, super soft flannels, outerwear, and more. With Untuck It, your shirts will never look baggy, bulgy, too long, or too big again. And their website is so easy to use, they even have a page devoted to helping you find your best fit. So whether you're shopping for the perfect gift or just trying to craft a smart, relaxed style of your own, Untuck It is the way to go. Visit untuckit.com and use code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. That's U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com and promo code BLUE for 20% off. Now, back to our show. As we do every week on the podcast, we take your questions for a pod bag. To ask a future podbag question, use the hashtag Rothshow on Twitter, or drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram at Mike Rothstein, or jump on that Facebook page I mentioned before. Now, let's get to it. Matthew Billman, who's at mbillman9, asks, I'm tired of hearing analysis saying players are old around the age of 30. The rules have changed the last decade, and I believe it's having an immediate impact on the longevity of players staying in the league. More and more players are playing past 35. Matthew, I found your question really interesting, so I started to dig into it. I went to Pro Football Reference as a guide and found that only 10 quarterbacks played in 2019 at age 35 and only 23 quarterbacks at age 30 or older. As far as defense goes, 
Pro Football Reference only had nine players recording stats at age 35 or older. The 30 or older set is much larger, approximately 135 or so. As far as players from scrimmage, eight non-quarterbacks gained yardage this year, age 35 or over, and less than 75 players total at age 30 or older. So while more players may seem like they are playing past 30, the numbers aren't that stark. Uh, for example, 2014, just three non-quarterback 35 or older had scrimmage yards, but 85 players age 30 or older had yards from scrimmage. And similarly, seven defensive players age 35 or older made at least one tackle in 2014, and over 175 defensive players did at age 30 or over. 16 defenders age 35 or older made plays, for example, in the year 2000. So the numbers might fluctuate a little bit from year to year, of course, but it seems pretty consistent year over year. And with the average career in the NFL spanning a little over three years, I don't think that's going to change. If anything, I think it'll become even more of a demarcation line if players choose to retire before their bodies completely give out on them as we've seen with Calvin Johnson and Luke Keekley, Patrick Willis, and so many other players over the last few years, the antithesis to the Tom Brady's of the world. It'll be something to watch, but I don't really think those numbers are going to change. I just think the top-end guys might end up playing a little bit longer if they so choose, and I'll also be curious to see, and I'm not going to get into this because I just don't know the specifics, of how the new CBA, when that's decided could end up playing into these things. Jocko, who is at Jocko28, asks, if the Lions and Slay cannot agree to a contract extension, what could we expect back in a trade? And Raymond Nunzoff at RayRay1222 asks, as much talk as there is about Slay being potentially traded due to him being vocal, otherwise known as not the Patriot way, the team is at least in it talks to extend him. What percentage do you give Slay to be a Detroit Lion next season? I combined these questions because they're similar. I'm not totally sure what you could get back for Slay in a trade if you moved him at this point. Knowing that you'd have him for a full season, provided that move came this offseason, would definitely help. And if Drew Rosenhaus, his agent, is allowed to negotiate a deal for Slay with whatever teams the Lions would trade him to potentially before that trade went down. If it went down, I think that could increase the value as well because you know you'd have him for a while. To me, I think the minimum would be a second round pick or maybe a third rounder if you're desperate. But that brings me to this. I'm not sold Detroit's going to move Slay. Like we were talking about before with Rick Wagner, the Lions need to win this year badly. And Slay is, without question, Detroit's best defensive player. The logic of needing good players to win is, well, it's logical. So I'm just not sure Detroit moves on from Slay unless there's a big-time offer that comes, which would, to me, be at least a first-round pick. We've all seen Detroit's issues finding a corner to play opposite Darius Slay since Rasheen Mathis retired. So it's not like there are easy discoveries and... Why would you want to make double the work for yourself? Which is why I'm just not sure they're going to move him all that quick. Unless they know they're going to agree to terms with Byron Jones or someone like that in free agency. And you're not going to know that till right before the start of the league year. 
If you asked me this in November, the number would have been much lower, but right now I'd say it's more likely than not that Slay ends up in Detroit in 2020. It's not a 100% thing or anything close to that, but I would put it at over 50%. Derek Barnsdale, who's at Rebel Journalist, asks, Is there any hope the Lions will be able to trade back from number three and take Clemson's Isaiah Simmons? Derek, sure it's possible, but depending how the draft falls, Simmons may be very enticing to the Lions or to the Lions at number three or to the Giants at number four. And that's really where it gets a little interesting. If I'm the Lions, I wouldn't venture too far back beyond number six if I want Simmons. And I'm very much a believer Simmons is going to be a dynamite NFL player. And he may just end up being the pick at number three, depending how the Lions feel about him versus, say, Jeffrey Okuda or Derek Brown. Matt Patricia loves versatility, and Simmons might be the most versatile player in the draft. Patricia could move him around a little bit everywhere, and that would give players like Tracy Walker and Jared Davis potentially more freedom. So yeah, there would be a hope, but it's a risk with the non-quarterback needy Giants sitting at number four that if they took Simmons... You might not get them if you trade back to number five or six or seven. Justin Oxner at Oxner 4 asks, Better draft scenario for the Lions. Chase Young falls to third overall, or the Lions trade back with Miami and land Okuda at five, plus another first-round pick. Well, to me, they're both good scenarios. If the Lions can stay at number three and fall into Young, who's a dynamic pass rusher and could give Detroit someone to pair with Trey Flowers, it could be game-changing on defense. Because then, potentially, Matt Patricia's non-blitzing preferences could work even a little bit better. If I'm the Lions, and I've said this since day one, I'm sprinting to the podium if Chase Young is there at number three. Don't even allow the thought of a trade or second-guessing creep into your mind. Take the talent. Now, if Young goes off the board at number two, as expected, and the Dolphins or Chargers are willing to trade up, then I think you make the move because you'd have at least one of the Jeffrey Okuda, Isaiah Simmons, Derek Brown group to pick from. And you'll pick up some sort of draft-slash-player haul back in that trade to help build your team even more. And the Lions need picks and they need to fill holes. It'll be interesting in the lead up to the draft for sure as the Lions are in a prime moving spot. But if Chase Young is there, Detroit should absolutely stick and make the pick again. Take the talent. The Night Moves at Night Moves 212 asks, are the Lions in the catbird seat? to trade down twice. If they trade to Miami at five, wouldn't there be a ton of interest for teams looking to come up for Justin Herbert? First of all, night moves. Uh, Using the word catbird, to me, I don't know if anyone watches Schitt's Creek or not. It's right now my favorite show on television now that Arrow and The Good Place are gone, and I know Schitt's Creek is in its last season. But the word catbird, I just always will have in my head of Moira Rose, who's played beautifully by Catherine O'Hara, saying that word, like, catbird. Like, just, that's in my head over and over. And now, if you've watched that show, I'm sure it will be in yours as well. And, by the way, if you haven't watched that show, I highly recommend it. It's just so well done and has such great heart. But to your question, yeah, I can see Detroit trading down twice. Absolutely. Here's how I would see that happening. Say Miami wants Tua enough to move up from number five. 
Then Carolina or Indianapolis or another quarterback needy team we haven't figured out quite yet really likes Justin Herbert or another quarterback, maybe Jordan Love, and wants to jump the Chargers at number six to make sure they get said player. That's how I can see it happening. That's really the only scenario where I'd see it possible. And depending how far the Lions would drop, say it were only to seven, they could still end up with one of those three main defensive players we've talked about over the last few minutes anyway. It would be incredibly shrewd by Bob Quinn if it were to happen, but as always, teams need partners willing to deal. And it's one of those scenarios that makes this draft incredibly interesting for Detroit. Mark Kellogg, who's at Mark A. Kellogg, asks, what will it take for another league to experience success? Is it possible? He's obviously referring to the XFL, which debuted over the weekend, and last year's failed AAF. And honestly, Mark, I could talk about this for hours because I spent months covering the rise and the fall of the Alliance of American Football last year from being at the first game in Orlando to being at training camp before that to, along with Seth Wickersham, writing basically the giant obituary of the league after it folded. But the short answer is money and patience. The AAF had, at the start, patience with Bill Polian running football and Charlie Ebersol running the business and technology side of things. They just never really had the money they needed and made poor decisions with investors, and that includes the since-indicted Reggie Fowler. And then when Tom Dundon came in, that patience thinned. Plus, some of the deals they made, particularly on the TV side of things, were not optimal, and their reliance on putting money into the technology, which was the app, which they said would be revolutionary, never really bore fruit like they thought it would. Which, this is all where the XFL could succeed. Money doesn't seem to be an issue since Vince McMahon has oodles of it. The question would be patience, and since he's doing this a second time around, he likely has an idea of what it'll really take to build a league and the understanding of likely eating losses for a little while if you want to get towards static or profitability. The last thing in this Listener's Digest version of how this would really work would be the on-field play has to be at least serviceable. With the AAF, to me, that wasn't really an issue. The play was better than expected at the start, and it was improving as weeks went along, and I watched a lot of Alliance of American football games. They had two major problems among their teams. Those were the teams in Atlanta and Memphis, but by the end, Atlanta was getting a little bit better, and Memphis was just in a horrible quarterback conundrum. Offensive line play was bad in that league. Quarterback play was spotty at best. But Garrett Gilbert came out of that league and played really well. Luis Perez, who was with the Lions for a second, literally a second, played in that league and was okay. So it was all right, not great. And then there's this one other question. Can the XFL keep interest beyond one week, both in crowds and in viewers? The AAF did that from a TV perspective with fairly consistent ratings and in certain markets, with their crowds, especially in Orlando and San Antonio. Other places like Memphis and Atlanta and Arizona, crowds were pretty weak, pretty thin, and overall just didn't really ever take true hold. And another mistake the AAF made that I don't think the XFL is going to have a problem with is marketing. The AAF barely did it. I've 
told this story before on other podcasts, but when I was in San Antonio for the AAF training camp, where every team was, you would not have known that the AAF training camp was there if you weren't specifically there for it. And cities really struggled to market their teams, again, in part due to finances and things they were told from the jump about not being able to market or have ad buys in certain places. So that's not going to be a problem. Vince McMahon is a master marketer. We've all seen it with the WWE. So that's not a problem. And that shouldn't be a problem. But in the AF, that was a major problem. So in short, money, time, quality play, reasonable expectations. That's how I think it can work. If there's more interest in this topic, by the way, and depending how the XFL does, there might be. I'm willing to go into this more down the road, maybe turn it into a full half podcast or something like that. Uh, listeners, just let me know if that's something you'd want me to do. Jason Russell at J Russell. M.I. asks, if you watch any XFL games this week, I'd be interested to know what you think. Well, Jason, I caught parts of two games as of the recording of this podcast, and the product was fine. It didn't blow me away. I thought it was a step up from where the AAF started last year, but you also had teams in turmoil by then, the aforementioned Atlanta and Memphis. And I think that overall they have maybe better overall players in the XFL, especially at the quarterback position. Although some of those guys like Brandon Silvers are the same. I was really intrigued by the kickoff changes in the XFL. I think that's something that could end up gaining traction if the league ends up succeeding for a bit. And as a media member, I'm all for open access and more player coach interviews in game and the locker room interviews and hearing play calls. It overall seemed like a fun experience on TV that's great for fans on television, but I couldn't speak to it in person. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting for coaches is if you're able to get every play call, you're probably having to change so much of that week by week. That could get really, really interesting as the season goes along. As far as on-field play, I like the potential for creativity And we saw it in the D.C. Seattle game. And some of the players are pretty good. The quarterback play, as I mentioned a little bit before, I thought was a step up from the Alliance of American Football. And I don't judge the L.A. situation in the XFL because expected starter Josh Johnson, who you may remember as Matthew Stafford's backup for a few weeks this year. And then the Lions reached out to him again after Matthew Stafford got hurt only to be rebuffed by the XFL, was injured, and in his place started another ex-Lions backup, but a practice squad guy, Charles Knopf. So not surprised that that didn't look all that great there because, again, like with NFL teams, when you go to your backup, it could get dicey, and when you're going to an XFL backup, it could get much dicier. I thought the tackling was spotty. Some of the receivers and running backs could have been way better as well but all in all it was a decent product it looked like the second half of a preseason nfl game and not necessarily preseason game number four which is exactly what it should look like skr24 that's s underscore k underscore r24 asks is matthew stafford being traded to the patriots a viable option and would they be super bowl favorites if they got him At this point, I don't see it. And what I say I don't see is trading Stafford to New England. 
And as we've talked about a bunch on this podcast the last few weeks, trading Stafford now will cost you more than it would to keep him. And in a win-now scenario, going into this season with a rookie quarterback would seem unpalatable to me if I'm Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia. I've said it often, Matthew Stafford is not the problem. Let's say it all together now. Matthew Stafford is not the problem. And to your second part of your question, no. I don't know if the Patriots would be Super Bowl favorites if they got Matthew Stafford somehow. Because... Tom Brady wasn't the problem last year in New England. It was many of the pieces around him that just weren't as talented. They were young. They were inexperienced. And also, that's the same type of thing you sometimes hear about Matthew Stafford. So, no, I I can't see that being a viable option at this point. You never know. I've learned to say never, say never in the NFL, but... I have a tough time seeing them moving Stafford to begin with, let alone to New England. DC Waz at DC Waz asks, do you think the Lions need to address the running back? If so, what do you think the Lions should do to address the running back position? Yeah, I do think the Lions need to look at running back a little bit. It's not the team's biggest need, and I'm not even sure it's in the top five. But bringing in another back would certainly make sense, especially if J.D. McKissick walks in restricted free agency. Detroit can like the potential of what it has and carry on Johnson, Bo Scarborough, and Ty Johnson. I happen to like it. But injuries are a major concern, especially with carry on and a little bit with Bo as well, considering he was beat up in season playing only half the year. So how would I address it? Day three of the draft, maybe. If Joshua Kelly is there in round four or five, I'd look to take him maybe. But there's a lot of running backs in this class. Or maybe I look to a free agent I'm not counting on for a ton. Unlike how the Lions have handled it the last couple of years with LeGarrette Blunt and C.J. Anderson as their counters for On Johnson. And that leads me to a name. It's a familiar name, and if he's your clear number four running back, it might be a sensible one. Zach Zenner. The Lions know him. They like him. He gets the offense. He won't be flashy, but he can play special teams. If he's in a competition with Trey Carson, Wes Hills and a rookie late-round pick or a free agent to be your number four guy or really maybe to push Ty Johnson as your number three, so be it. If he ends up making the team, great. If he ends up not making the team, okay. But that's the type of running back I would add is a safe guy that you know on the back end of the roster you can get stuff out of. I don't think you need to go chase a replacement for On Johnson or Bo Scarborough just yet. Nathan Bruce at nbrucer12 asks, I'm curious as to what it is like for you guys in the media at the NFL Combine. I get that you are there to learn about the guys on the field and hear from coaches. Is there ever anything interesting that takes place? Nathan, this is a great question, and we'll end the podcast today on this one. There's a lot interesting that goes on, but some history. The Combine has changed greatly from my first one covering it in 2006 or 2007. I I don't really remember which year it was at this point when I was working in Fort Wayne and covering Notre Dame. Back then, the media attending was a fraction of of what it is now, a very, very small fraction. We were in one conference room in the Indianapolis Convention Center, and it was a free-for-all. If you saw a coach or GM, you could talk to them one-on-one for a bit and get good information, and it wasn't structured like it is now. Then the combine grew and became even more of an event, more of a TV showcase. Over a thousand media members ended up being credentialed, and 
everyone seems to descend on Indianapolis. The player interaction and the coach interaction became more structured. The last few years, it's gotten pretty strict and stringent. And frankly, when I go, I'm not even going into the main room with players and coaches half of the time. I'm outside working, trying to talk to people away from everybody else. Because there are two combines. The one you see on TV and the one you don't. But sometimes it's written about. Much of the real information gathering comes at night in the bars and restaurants of Indianapolis where you're chatting with agents, personnel, executives, and coaches. Often at St. Elmo's, Steak and Shake, and more places. Anywhere you go in Indianapolis, you're bound to run into somebody. You're building relationships and picking up nuggets to make your reporting better. Sometimes there's alcohol flowing, although for me there's not because I haven't drank in over two years. But it can lead to interesting conversations for sure. Not too much I can share on this podcast at this point, but let me tell you, it's a scene. And Jerry Jones's bus is usually driving around Indianapolis somewhere as well. And it's not really combine week for you, and you haven't really been at the combine for a week until you've seen the Jerry Jones bus. Realistically, it's an exhausting four or five days, depending how long you're there. In the past, at least, and they've changed the structure again this year, so we'll see how it goes. You sometimes wouldn't get to your hotel room until 3 a.m., only to be up by 7 a.m. the next day to do it all over again. It's a grind. You get home, and you just want to sleep for two days, but it's part of the job. Thanks, as always, to Blue Wire and Regents Field for hosting this podcast, and my producers, Stephen Arkinall and David Woodley, along with this episode's sponsors, Untuck It and Bet Online. If you like what you hear, don't forget to drop us a five-star rating and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play, along with letting us know who you want to hear from in the future and questions you might have. You can read my stuff on ESPN.com and hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Rothstein and on Facebook, either at Michael Rothstein Journalist or join our new page, The Michael Rothstein Show. We'll chat with you on Thursday.